If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor and I are recording the show on Wednesday, July 10th, 2019, which means, Drew, you just got back from the premiere of The Lion King in Hollywood. Is that correct? Or? That is correct, yes. Okay. Interesting that it was at, over at the Dolby rather than the El Cap. Uh, I think the reason for that was capacity oh. more than anything because the junket is this week. And so it it was a world premiere last night, but it was also a press screening. Ah, so, yeah, okay. I think that's more the reason okay. more than anything else. Got it. But. Okay, because Toy Story 4 is still running across the street, right? Yeah. Have you seen it yet, Jim? <sighs> you keep asking this question. Wow. Wow. <laughs> for some odd reason, I'm not feeling it, though. I think I mentioned that the local drive-in for three weeks running now has had a double feature of Toy Story 4 and Aladdin. I can get caught up with one screening. I just have to leave the house and actually go there. And that's it's the leaving the house part lately that's tough to do. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Uh, we'll tell you what, folks. We'll get Drew's impressions of this Lion King reboot on the second half of the show. Now, has Disney refined the language yet as to what they're describing these things? I actually went to the El Cap page and the way they describe this new Lion King is that it was made utilizing pioneering filmmaking techniques to bring treasured characters to life in a whole new way. Yes. There is no more clarification on that. And in fact, mm-hmm. during his intro before the movie last night, John Favreau said, there's one shot in this movie that's live action. We'll see if you can figure out what it is. Oh, wow. So there's no more clarification, but... Mm-hmm. I was kind of going after people on Twitter this morning when they were calling it a special effects movie. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is not a special effects movie. This is an animated film Mm -hmm. through and through. But the language has not been any more clarified. He talked about using VR. He talked about using other techniques. But the movie is entirely animated. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what his MO is on that one. Got it. (laughs) Can can you talk a little bit about the actual premiere? I mean, were you on the red carpet, you know, doing interviews or was this strictly stroll in and see the film? Yeah, just I was just a guest. Mm -hmm. So thank you to Disney Mm -hmm. for including me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was it was an amazing night. It was at the Dolby, which is where the Oscars are held. Mm -hmm. And the last premiere I went there. To, I was I saw Ready Player One there last year at the premiere. Oh, okay. Which was really fun. Mm-hmm. And then they had a whole after party where you could make your own Pride Rocks. Mm-hmm. You could draw on a rock. There was a McDonald's truck there that was giving out Happy Meals, which I loved as, as a man-child myself. <laughs> and there was Dole Whip, which I'm sure all of our listeners can appreciate. that If there is a premiere with Dole Whip, then that makes it the best premiere ever. Well, there you so, go. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right, cool, cool, cool. We'll talk more again about the the actual film on the second half of the show. But getting back to Toy Story 4, that Josh Cooley film was number two at the box office this past weekend. And like we said, that third weekend release at this point. And it did $33.8 million worth of tickets, roughly a third of what Spider-Man Far From Home did over its opening weekend, which Toy Story 4 is 18 days into its run into North America at this point. It sold... $310.2 million worth of tickets. 
Drew, if we compare to where Toy Story 3 was, box office-wise, 18 days into its run, uh, that Lee Unkridge movie, when it hit theaters back in June of 2010, it sold uh, 301.8 million worth of tickets in just uh, 18 days. So it looks like they're performing just about the same. Do have to take into consideration, though, that back in 2010... Theater tickets on average cost $7.89. Today, they, they go for $9.01 on average. And also back in June of 2010, Toy Story 3 was showing on 4,028 screens around North America, whereas Toy Story 4 is showing on 4,540 screens. So when you factor in that dollar and 12 cent difference to plus the 500 more screens, Look, this Josh Cooley film is doing well. I mean, I think, you know, there was that initial concern given the opening weekend. But that said, it's still not doing quite as well as Lee Unkridge's Toy Story sequel did nine years ago. So it's going to be interesting at the end of the summer to see where it settles out. Disney positioned this film to play at the El Cap for three and a half weeks. It opened on June 20th and is supposed to end its run on July 14th. Avengers Endgame. Biggest movie of the summer, that was scheduled, same thing, three and a half weeks, uh, April the 25th through the 19th. On the other hand, Drew, Disney's got John Favreau's Lion King. Uh, they've set this up to run at the El Cap for six and a half weeks, which says to me that they believe that this is the hit of the summer. Well, they also previously had scheduled Artemis Fowl to be coming out in August. So oh! <laughs> that's the other thing that they're... Okay, uh, good. Thank you for pointing that out. Because it just yes. it, it was one of these things where it's like, that's an awfully long time, particularly at the El Cap. On the other hand, they are doing some interesting stuff over at the El Cap. If you buy the ticket for this thing, they have the photo up on stage. You can actually go up and pose in front of a Pride Rock setup. They've got a Timon and Pumbaa photo op out in the lobby. Likewise, some sort of a Lion King impressive, immersive mural. That's the way they describe it. Okay. Two different fan events starting on the Thursday opening. Uh, there's the opening and fan event. Starts at 5 o'clock. You get an exclusive poster, souvenir, popcorn bucket, and the like. On the other hand, have you heard about the sunrise screening? No, I have not heard about this. On Friday the 19th, should you feel the need, Drew, at 6 a.m., they're going to be screening this thing at the, the El Capitan. Not only that, if you go, they will give you a bowl of cereal and a go-gurt. The coffee bean and tea leaf will also be serving tea and, and coffee. And you know, you'll walk away with a souvenir ocarina cup, which that sounds like the most obnoxious thing on the planet. <laughs> But both of these things, the fan events, $35 ticket, and they come with a reserve seat. And the Thursday night event, the one that starts at 5, is already sold out. I couldn't get any info on how well the 6 a.m. one is going. I would imagine they still have seats available. Yes. If that was $15, I might go. Okay. But 35 is a is a pretty penny to get up and go into Hollywood at at 6 a.m. That's when the bootleg Black Panther is coming out of his, his cave underneath the Hollywood and Highland uh, bus terminal. So, yeah. Yes, always enjoy yeah. the almost legal characters wandering around there at the Chinese. Yes. Well, obviously, if you went to the El Cap for this, you'd get to see some interesting trailers. And just in the last week, we've had 
2 drop that I wanted to get your thoughts on. We had the Mulan trailer, which premiered on Sunday during the broadcast of the U.S. women's soccer team when they had their victory over the Netherlands. And then we had Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, uh, less than 24 hours later that showed up on GMA. So, first of all, Mulan, what'd you think? I thought Mulan looked amazing. Mm -hmm. I think it's the right approach to this material. I know people are bent out of shape about the no Mushu thing Mm -hmm. and the no song thing, but I just love how different it looks. Mm -hmm. I love that they treated it like a real kind of Chinese historical epic. Mm -hmm. And um, the girl who plays Mulan looks perfect in the role. I think it's, I'm really excited. I don't know. How did did you feel about it? It does a nice job of selling the film. I especially love that badass shot of her, what, firing off like five arrows inside of five seconds. Yes. It looks like it's just different enough, but at the same time respectful of not only the source material, and we're talking the actual legend in Mulan and, and likewise the animated film. This is something that's definitely going to be worth seeking out when it finally makes it into theaters March 27th of next year. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, Mistress of Evil, talk to me about that one. Uh, um, yeah, I'm not, not too excited about this one. I actually thought that the first teaser was kind of intriguing, mm-hmm. but this looks uh, just unnecessary, I think is probably the, the nicest way I can put it. I don't know why this movie exists, and I don't know why it exists so late. It really reeks of Alice through the looking glass to me, where they're like, come on, we can still get some juice out of this thing. But yeah, it looks pretty silly. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer and Angelina Jolie bickering mm-hmm. will be very funny, but besides that, I'm not super excited about it. The thing that caught my attention was the, uh, it's like during the last 15 seconds of the trailer, you supposedly get to see Maleficent among her people. In fact, that's the quote from the trailer, The that you spent years oh, caring yeah. for a human, now it's time to care for your own. I'm fascinated by that because this is such a departure from the original script that Linda Wolverton wrote for the first Maleficent movie. I got lucky enough to get, get my hands on the draft, and this was back when Maleficent was a member of the Fairy Court, and they actually shot those scenes with Miranda Richardson and Peter Capaldi, where they played Queen Ola and King Kalak. And that's six weeks of work that just got cut out of the movie. And the gimmick there was that Maleficent originally was a member of the fairy court that the queen got so mad at that she was the one who gave Maleficent her horns. With the idea that now you will, your outer appearance will be as wicked as your heart is. And she was cursed in the film to be stuck with these horns for 100 years. The the other thing that came out in the original screenplay is Maleficent's dad was referred to as the man in red. He literally was the devil. He'd appear in this cloud of brimstone and he talked to, he was trying to convince his daughter to finally truly be evil. Because that's the thing that Wolverton was trying to do with her take on the screenplay was that Maleficent, at least in the original 2014 film, was supposed to be sort of straddling the two sides of her nature. Was she good? Was she a villain? Was she a hero? They put a work print of this thing together, and everybody agreed that because of all of the fairy court stuff, the film started off very, very slowly. So they actually brought in John Lee Hancock. I guess he had just finished working on Saving Mr. Banks. And they were like, hey, do you you have a week 
because we need to do some reshoots on Maleficent. And he came in and shot, I guess, over eight days, a number of, of scenes to sort of speed up the beginning of the film and sort of... I mean, because that's the thing. If you watch the movie today, Maleficent is alone in the swamp. She's established as the leader of this world. So we lost the whole beginning of the movie. But the interesting thing, we also lost the very last scene of the film, which was after Briar Rose and Prince Philip reconcile and, you know, the creatures of the swamp are happily applauding. We, we cut to a treetop where Maleficent and Diablo, is that what the guy who was who could change into a raven was called? Oh, I don't remember. If, yeah, but I, yeah, that guy. Okay, so literally as they're sitting there in the tree, the curse that Queen Ulna put on Maleficent is over. The hundred years are up. And so <laughs> Maleficent actually reaches up and first pulls off one horn and then pulls off the other horn. And so she's back to looking normal. And Diablo says, so what happens now? And she's sitting there with her, the horns in her cans. It's like, I have no idea. And that's how the movie was originally supposed to end. That's a great ending. Yeah. That's a really great ending. Well, you know, the funny story about all this stuff that they reshot is that they sent people to, to visit the set in London when they were in production. Oh, God. And, yeah. and they actually struck everybody from ever reporting anything that they saw on the set for those couple of days because the movie had changed so radically. Wow. Which never happens. I mean, they want to recoup something out of, you know, flying a bunch of journalists across the country mm -hmm. to to another country, to London, <laughs> and they just said, do not run this ever so, wow. hey, they got a free vacation out of it. Okay, so. okay. What, what's so funny is that Peter Capaldi, this was when he was just being introduced as the new Doctor Who. And so, you know, initially when he did the first round of interviews, it's like, yeah, I just did this giant Disney film. And I'd, they'd get me up at three o'clock in the morning and I'd spend six hours in makeup and then I'd get on the set. And, you know, the big Hollywood film can't wait to see how it turns out. And then by the time he's finished doing the press tour, it's like, yeah, you're never going to see that footage. I'm never going to see that footage. They just cut it all out of the movie. So I wonder if that's that's when they sent them to the set for the fairy court stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Well, speaking of the devil, have you ever played Cuphead, the run-and-gun game? No, I have it on my Switch, but I have not played it yet. I've been sucked into this, like, 8-bit version of, of Stranger Things, mm -hmm. this game that came out, because I'm obsessed with the third season. So, I haven't gotten around to Cuphead, but I promise. Cuphead is like my Toy Story 4. I promise to play <laughs> Cuphead Okay, soon. okay. Uh, well, okay. the reason I'm bringing it up again, and as Drew explained, this is a game that was initially announced back in 2013, hit the marketplace back in September 2017, and the Switch version came out, what, April of last year. But... Cuphead's really beloved by both gaming fans and animation fans because it so closely apes the look of the classic Fleischer shorts of the 30s, that, that rubber hose animation. And Netflix and King Features announced just yesterday that they're going to be doing an, an animated series, the, the Cuphead Show, which is supposed to debut on that subscription streaming service sometime in 2020. We all know how much you love the Mickey Mouse shorts, the Paul yes. Reddish things. A lot of the folks who are working on the Cuphead show are, are folks who came up through the ranks on the Mickey Mouse shorts. Uh, we have Dave Wasson, who directed a number of the shorts. He'll be executive producing the Cuphead show. Uh, Clay Morrow, who also directed a, a number of the shorts, who's going to be a supervising director. Andrea Fernandez, uh, who served as an art director on Unikitty, is going to be art directing the Cuphead show. Chad and Jared 
Boldenhauer, the, the creators of the original Run and Gun game, they're going to be serving executive producers, and they made it a condition for this project to go forward that it had to be hand-drawn, that this wasn't going to be one of those situations where you create a CG rig and then figure out with the software how to make it look like hand-drawn. This is legitimately going to be hand-drawn, so they're trying to get that sort of Fleischer-inspired uh, rubber hosiness thing going. I love me some Max Fleischer, but it kind of kills me that this thing that pretends to be Max Fleischer or you know, pays tribute to it, uh, that could get out the door, but we couldn't get Gennady's Popeye movie done. Uh, kills me. Yeah, yeah. And later this month, San Diego Comic-Con, King Features and Warners are going to be celebrating Popeye's 90th birthday. Gary Marone uh, is going to be moderating a panel there. We're going to have input from animation historian and his uh, author, Jerry Beck. This being the 50th anniversary of Comic-Con sounds like a fun way to go. Uh, well, speaking of Comic-Con, when Drew and I get back from a commercial break, we're going to talk a little bit about the programming for this year's event. And likewise, we're going to get more info about Drew's take on John Favreau's Lion King. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Before we get started here, I wanted to share what you tweeted out last night, right after you got out of the Lion King premiere, Drew. And what you wrote was, Loved, loved, loved the Lion King. Strikes a perfect balance between devotion and innovation, a technical and emotional achievement that feels downright unparalleled. Truly, you've never seen anything like this before. And Billy Anchner steals the movie. Given that you're really a guy who's not all that easily impressed, this is very high praise. <laughs> yes. So this is the second time John Favreau has done... Well, it's not the exact same thing, because face it, in The Jungle Book, back in 2016, there was, there was a literal live actor playing Mowgli. Whereas what you said at the top of the show... One scene, you know, one shot in this entire movie that's actually live action. So, yes. Is this an improvement on Jungle Book or? I, I mean, I think they're very different. I think that Jungle Book has the benefit of being a movie from 1967 mm-hmm. that modern audiences aren't super familiar with. Mm-hmm. Besides sort of the key tenets of the, some of the characters and some of the songs. Mm-hmm. Whereas Lion King, which was released, you know, 25 years ago this past June, is something that people are still very much a part of and feel very indebted to. And it's been, it's actually very weird to think there hasn't been a theme park attraction, uh, an actual attraction. Mm -hmm. There's been stage shows, but, you know, you and I went and saw the, uh, what is the show at at Animal Kingdom called? 
Oh, the spirit spirit of the Lion King. Or there we go. Called? Yes, yes. The thing that's made out of the old parade float chunks from Disneyland. Yes, with some very suggestive stick twirling by some <laughs> of those guys. I remember. Um, so, uh, um, you know, I think that it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Mm -hmm. I was curious because I was wondering if they were going to go back to any of the ideas that they had originally proposed for the Lion King, which you and I know all about. I mean, everything from Simba being a um, albino Mm -hmm. cub to that rhinoceros character that was his friend for a long time. Yeah. Okay. And Mm -hmm. then the idea of them doing... Do you remember at one point all of the backgrounds, instead of being watercolor, were actually going to be African textiles that they were going to have that, that all the backgrounds were going to look like that. So I I was sort of, I was wondering if they were going to go into the kind of like deep vault and and pick any of that stuff out. Mm -hmm. Turns out they did not, but it's photo real and they really stick to the photo real Mm -hmm. stuff. So things that animals cannot do Mm -hmm. in real life, they don't do in the movie. So nobody has opposable thumbs. Nobody picks anything up. You know, the hula scene mm-hmm. is not there. There is a really awesome replacement that I will not spoil, but the hula scene is not there. Okay. Rafiki's kung fu is not there. Oh, okay. His tail isn't there because that, that animal, I think it's a mandarin or something, mandarin, does not have yeah. a tail. And they, and, they, and they added the tail for the animated movie. So he doesn't have a tail. You know, things like that, which are really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a deconstruction of what those characters could and couldn't do in, in a really fascinating way there's nothing from the musical so shadowlands is not there Mm -hmm. the madness of king scar is not there none of that is there there is a new song by beyonce which premiered last night which i don't know if you got to hear or not well how does she's speaking of which uh, we're talking about spirit here does it fit does it work or it fits enough you've heard the song right it's very modern Mm -hmm. it's a very modern song okay and it it plays when simba and nala are traveling back to the pride rock Mm -hmm. so it's just in that kind of little montage so it's not it's not super uh it doesn't stick out and there's not a whole musical number devoted to it there is not a new musical number Mm -hmm. be prepared is shortened considerably Mm -hmm. uh, but there are some new lyrics in there and there's a new elton john song over the credits but i could not hear it because going to that movie last night was like going to a rock concert Mm -hmm. after every single musical number the entire audience burst into applause. And the last time that happened with a Disney movie was Princess and the Frog, which I went to a press screening of in 2009 Mm -hmm. in Times Square. And let's just say the audience was very musical. Hmm. They were very Broadway. (laughs) And they they applauded after every song. Mm. So it it was an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. So From, you know, a lot of us from having just seen the trailers and the clips that were out there and that sort of thing, there was a feeling that this is kind of a shot-for-shot remake of the animated original from 94. Is that impression mistake? I mean, you've, you've obviously talked about, you know, the opposable thumb and that sort of thing, but what about the storytelling? Yeah. No, the storytelling is is different. There there are definitely shots that are repeated, mm-hmm. and there are, def- you know, all the moments that you know and love are there. Mm-hmm. But there, there's different takes on things. There are ways that Favreau kind of like extends some sequences. There's an amazing sequence at the beginning of the movie. Instead of that sequence right after the credit, because you know people don't talk about how weirdly that movie is structured, mm-hmm. the original movie, because it's like you you see Simba being presented. There's one scene afterwards mm-hmm. when Mufasa confronts Scar, and then there's like a five year gap, you know that we don't see at all. Mm-hmm. 
So there's a great sequence. You know when Scar like smashes the the mouse at the beginning? Mm-hmm. There's that great Andreas Deja animation of him playing with the mouse. Mm-hmm. There's a whole sequence of that mouse sort of like his day leading up to that oh. <laughs> moment, which is really hysterical mm-hmm. and really cute. And there are just little moments like that where he just kind of extends things. He he makes sort of little suspense pieces out of out of those little moments, and it's it's really lovely. But there's a lot of direct shot for shot stuff. It just looks so different, and the characters look so different that it it really works. Did it take you out of the film at all? You know, ninety nine point nine percent of the cast, the vocal cast of this is different, and yet here's James Earl Jones back as Mufasa. What was that like? It was good. It's He sounds old. I think that if you've heard him recently, either in Rogue One or some of the cartoon stuff, that his voice work sounds like an older mm-hmm. man. Okay. But it was really great to hear. I mean, honestly, they could have just used his track from the original movie. I, I don't think there's any substantial changes to dialogue mm-hmm. or screen time or anything like that. But but it was, it was great. I mean, the, the whole voice cast is really, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Speaking of the voice cast, though, I mean, they made such a big deal about landing Beyonce. Yeah. Do you feel like they got their money's worth out of Mrs. Noel Carter or <laughs> Well, you should have seen people freaking out mm. when she came into the theater. It was pretty it was pretty funny. Mm. Yeah, they they give Nala a lot more to do. She's a lot more headstrong. Mm. There's an extra scene with her kind of confronting Scar before she goes off to find Simba. Mm-hmm. And the only problem I had was that the female lions look so much alike mm. that I could not tell her and Nairobi apart a lot of the time so it was not until the the animals opened their mouths then i said oh that's beyonce there but she does a great job and and her singing can you feel the love tonight with donald glover is like one of the highlights of the movie wow okay yeah You, you mentioned again in your tweet that billy as timon was your favorite part can you share yes the the story you you did get to talk with him a little bit last night Oh yeah, well I didn't. Get to, I saw him, they they ran the kind of like red carpet stuff mm-hmm. on the TVs inside the Dolby, and he said, you know, you gotta you gotta think of this as like a, a Broadway production or you know a revival of a classic Broadway play where it's gonna be the same script, you're gonna hit the same beats, but it's gonna be a totally new interpretation. It's gonna look totally different, and a lot of that comes with what the actors bring. And he was totally right mm-hmm. because. He and Seth Rogen absolutely steal the show mm. as Timon and Pumbaa. And he, in particular, gives this really wonderful performance that is just so funny and so heartfelt. And I just, I loved every second. Every second he was on screen, I was very happy. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. And speaking of which, out of an hour and 58 minutes, did I read that correctly? Good. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a full, it's a lot longer than the, uh, mm. the original. Beyond Billy's performance, Timon... Did you have a particularly favorite part? I mean, did the, the wildebeest stampede work photo reel or, you know, I mean. Yes, that was very cool. Hmm. It, it's really intense. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, one of my other favorite parts was just seeing the kind of like fire on the on Pride Rock really brought to life in ways that you could tell that they wish they could have done in, in 94, but didn't quite have the technology to. Mm-hmm. That stuff looks absolutely beautiful. And it's sort of an epic, like. Avengers style brawl between all these lions and hyenas and it's really cool. I think people are going to love it. Very cool. All right. Well, now I want to go see this thing. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. And by the way, I can't help but notice that Lion King opens in theaters on the very same day that your this year's Comic-Con International opens in San Diego and I was eyeballing the calendar 
for 2020 and 2021, and I noticed that Mission Impossible 7 is supposed to be released to theaters on July 23rd, 2021, and the 2020 edition of San Diego Comic-Con, that's <laughs> Thursday, uh, July 23rd, 2020, one year to the day that Mission Impossible uh, 7 opens at theaters, and there's so many folks who do who do live podcasts down there. In fact, the, the, the guys who do the best movie never made, uh, they're actually doing a live podcast on the first day of, of Comic-Con where they're going to talk about Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. Oh, that's fun. If they can do a podcast, you should be down there doing the Mission Impossible podcast, you know, talking about what Seven... Because, again, this is when Seven and Eight are being shot back-to-back, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll do you one better. I, th- I think I should be hosting the official Paramount Pictures Mission Impossible panel next year at Comic-Con. Okay, folks, we have a goal. We have a goal. Okay, yeah. we need an address, Drew. you got to get us an address, but, but now okay. we now have a goal. Not to out anyone or anything, but I think that Mr. Cruz might make an appearance at this year's Comic-Con as well. Ooh. But I will not say what for and in what context. Okay. But that's, I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, well, now, speaking of this year's yes. Comic-Con, let's just pick one day. Let's pick the opening day. Drew, how many Comic-Cons have you been to at this point? Oh, God. Not that many. Mm. Maybe, like, less than five okay. at this point. Yeah. But the sad thing is, even with Prince Garnitials, even with setting up interviews in advance, you still never get everything done that you want to do. Some of it is just the size of it. Some of it is kind of the reality that Comic-Con is a convention on top of a convention on top of a convention. And the first day of Comic-Con, Thursday, July 18th, on Hall H, they're doing a 20th anniversary panel for Batman Beyond. They're bringing in Bruce Timm. They're bringing in uh, casting director, uh, voice director Andrew Romano, and even the voice actors, Will Friedle and, and Kevin Conroy are going to be there. This is scheduled to happen at 12.15 p.m. in Hall H, whereas just 15 minutes later in room 6A, Brian Vokes Weiss is going to be talking about the third season of his hit Netflix series, The Toys That Made Us, which... By the way, have you checked that out yet, Drew? Or oh yeah, I love. I watch both seasons. I love. No, it. it's it's a great yeah. great show. But that's yeah. But that's the thing that that makes me crazy because it's like you have to constantly make the pop culture equivalent of Sophie's Choice. It would almost in my case kind of tip the scale to do the Toys That Made Us panel is that in Room Six A immediately after Brian wraps up his presentation is when Nickelodeon comes in with basically the entire voice cast of SpongeBob. I mean, Tom Kenny's going to be there, Bill Falkenbach, uh, Roger Bumpus, Clancy Brown, Mr. Lawrence, and they're there to celebrate the 20th anniversary of SpongeBob and, and do promotion for, what is it, the thing that's coming out this fall, SpongeBob's big birthday bash? Oh, my God. Have you have you seen the marketing push that this thing is getting? No, no, no. I mean, it, it's crazy. Mm. They've been running marathons on TV. They've got all this new merchandise. It's going to be, it's a big deal. Anything that puts Mr. Kenny back in the spotlight, it makes me happy. Did, <laughs> have I ever told you about my Tom Kenny Comic-Con story? Uh, no, you haven't. Okay. This is the last presentation on the last day. It's like 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Everybody's exhausted. This is when Disney yeah. is doing the push for... Robot Team Hyperforce Monkey Something Go. Do you remember the show? The No. Oh, it, it only lasted a, a season of show, but, I mean, it had an amazing voice cast. But the thing is that among the members of the cast was Tom Kenny, and he wasn't 
on the panel and they were making apologies for him that he you know he wasn't there and but from the back of the hall you hear boo you know tom kenny sucks he's a terrible guy boo and the voice panel just starts to laugh and it's like tom will you get up here <laughs> he had actually been out walking the halls with his son tom just doesn't go to comic-con to panel tom goes to comic-con because he loves comic-con and he walked by the door of this presentation it's like oh Hey, that's a panel for the show I'm doing. And and I walked in, and at the very moment they were saying his name, and so he comes up on stage and proceeds to hijack the panel. But jump ahead a, a couple of years, and when Tom came in to do the voice of Rabbit on Winnie the Pooh, and they did the junket in the Roy E. Disney building before they did the rehab, I ran to the top of the hallway and proceeded to tell him he was my favorite moment in the history of Comic-Con just because of that story. And then made the mistake of, you know, going into actually interviewing with a bunch of other journalists. And he proceeded to hijack the entire interview and talk about Comic-Con as opposed to Winnie the Pooh or Rabbit or how his version of Rabbit was based on Jack Lemmon. And, oh, Disney publicity loved me for that. <laughs> So, well, speaking of, of Disney, back to Thursday, July 18th, 2 o'clock in room 25 ABC, they've got what they're calling the Disney Anniversaries panel. And in, in one hour-long slot, they're going to try to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Sleeping Beauty, the 30th anniversary of The Little Mermaid, the 25th anniversary of The Lion King, 20th anniversary of Tarzan, and the 10th anniversary of Princess and the Frog. And it sounds impossibly to me, Drew, but the fact that they've got Floyd Norman's going to be there, uh, Jane Bear, Nick Ranieri, Kathy Zielinski, and Disney Authority and award-winning author Dave Bossard. So, Nick Ranieri, who is the author of our favorite Facebook account. Oh, God, yeah. In fact, has he updated it recently? Or I haven't looked recently, but every time I do, it's I lose hours of my oh, day yeah. no, just no. looking. Killer, killer, killer stuff, but... If, on the other hand, you prefer a little more edge to your animation, Spike and Mike are going to be back this year and do their, their festival animation. Uh, let's, oh, wow. Yeah, that also is going to be in room uh, 25 ABC, which, which brings me to the other point. How do you feel about camping out? The practice of people just sort of, you know, you get in a room at Comic-Con and you sort of go, well, there's a panel that I really want to see in three hours. So I'll sit through a couple of things that I don't necessarily want to say. Did you ever do that? or I have done it before. I'm not proud of it, mm -hmm. Jim. I'm not. But it's something that you have to do where you look at the clock and say, oh, the, the Marvel panel's at seven. Mm -hmm. I'm here for the uh, Kubo and the two strings there we go. panel at 11. Mm -hmm. And you just sit there. Yeah. And if you're, you're planning on attending a plan panel, you have to actually look at what's further down the schedule because that will often impact whether or not people are camping in the room. I mean, take, for example, back in room 25 ABC, uh, 4.45 in the afternoon. That's when they're doing the 20th anniversary of home movies. And given how many people who work on Bob's Burgers are now, uh, you know, who worked on home movies back in the day, you've got Lauren Bouchard and you've got H. John Benjamin. The panel that follows this is a master class in how the onstage magic and illusions are done in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, that hit show on Broadway, the thing that's in the West End, and 
In fact, the U.S. tour that kicks off at the Curran Theater in San Francisco in October. So yeah, we're gonna try to go in October. Are you really? To see it. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I, yeah. I hear it's absolutely amazing. But yeah, if you're a home movies fan, you have to take into consideration that it's entirely possible that. This will be an audience full of Harry Potter fans who, because they didn't want to miss the presentation about the cursed child, got there at one or two o'clock in the afternoon and have mm-hmm. camped out. So when you go to Comic-Con, there's, there's two things that you, you, you have to, to do. One is that you have to read through the programming, programming and strategize, you know, literally triage, you know, have a, this is the panel I most want to see, but also have a, a secondary position, a third position, because often is not. You probably won't get your first choice. Also, you really have to have that attitude that, that you are, you know, it's quite likely that you're going to be disappointed. You're not going to get into the thing you want to do. And Drew and I have done these things multiple times, and we have friends who are publicists and who can slide us in back doors or set us up for interviews and that sort of thing. And it's still, still with... That level of professional help, there, you know, you often is not walk away from Comic-Con going, oh, if I'd just been able to do this or if I'd just been able to do that. Don't assume that when it's the tail end of the day that the crowds will dissipate. One of the panels I would really love to go to on the first day of Comic-Con is the How It Should Have Ended panel. Uh, Daniel Baxter and, and Tina Alexander, the folks behind this popular YouTube channel, are, are going to be presenting in room 7AB at 7 p.m., which normally you'd think, okay, so people are tired, they're going back to their rooms, they're going to get something to eat. Even so, you're still going to be frozen out, folks. It just you know, for a lot of people who put, who've traveled a long way, they'll put in the time. They will, they'll stand in a line for three, four, five hours just to get in. It's Oga's Cantina only. Oh no! Yeah. Oh no! So well, this is what I'm going to say: is that if you don't get into a panel, go walk the floor, go meet somebody, go buy something cool. It's not all doom and gloom. There Just you go. enjoy yourself while you're there. Okay, yeah. that's a healthy attitude. So yes. Speaking of how things should have ended, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Fine Tuning, folks. Drew, we talked previously about your Light Diffuse podcast and how you should host the official Paramount uh, kind of thing at the 2020. San Diego Comic-Con, but what's going on with your show these days that, that celebrates the Mission Impossible film franchise? Well, we're doing all about uh, all stuff about the music this this month, so we um, we talked to this great guy, Jeremy Dillon, who has a um, who has a great podcast about sort of like the album that, that, that defines your life, and so we talked to him, mm-hmm. and we go through each score, even back to the TV show, and talk about stuff, and, and that's it. But um, I will also be appearing on the Collider podcast this week to talk about how john carter was almost a pixar movie oh no oh wow okay (laughs) that's must tune in and for stuff holy cow okay yes you are a brave soul (laughs) (laughs) on my side of the fence it's the usual pile of crud folks we've got uh disney dish with len testo we've got uh looking at lucasfilm with dan z universal joint with dustin fuse and course we have the marvelous disney podcast which i do with aaron adams if you could head over to itunes and rate and recommend the show and while you're over there also rate and recommend light the fuse head over to Bandcamp and subscribe that helps keeps the lights on and we try and do some special shows there just for subscribers thanks for listening folks and we'll be back with a brand new show very very soon
Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.